This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob Singh, the Executive Director of the Oregon Justice Resource Center. My name is Eric Dietrich. I'm General Counsel of the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services. just stop saying that i think moving forward i think we're back <laughs> and just act and uh and just assume that the fact that we're back is a good thing and that uh it was an intense week but um this week we're going to be talking about again the criminal legal system kind of walking through it uh from you know arrest pre-law enforcement contact arrest all the way through re-entry but this week we're really going to be focusing on the asymmetrical sort of power dynamics that exist throughout the system so previously we talked about the courts a little bit about public defense and the prosecution um, and just how it works um, so this time what we really want to do is kind of walk through the system again now that we have a familiarity with um, the actors and, and the process to talk about how the power dynamics really play out because that that to me is like the the most critical factor, the asymmetry of power. And when we talk about dehumanization and um, you know white supremacy and these structural issues that can have contributed to mass incarceration, one of the I think the biggest things towards dehumanization is uh, removing agency from people. That that is the core of dignity, like the ability to be able to retain, make the ability to make decisions about yourself, and to be able to control your life is the biggest, is sort of the highest level of freedom. And as we see in our society, we have to uh, scale that back down in order to live in a community. There are compromises that we make, rules that we live by. But because of these structural factors like white supremacy, um, poverty, whatever it may be, there are forces in place that actually remove agency intentionally from people to create layers of a hierarchy, whether it's racial or social. And going through the criminal legal system, what we really see that dehumanization and sort of full display, because essentially we're moving people throughout the system that have very little agency or ability to make decisions about themselves. So we'll talk about that this week. But as we do every week, we want to start off with the news and what captured our attention. So what captured your attention this past week, Eric? Uh, No, this week I got my voters pamphlet guide in the mail. So and I got my ballot, too. Um, And I, you know, with election ramping up, I know so many folks are focused on, um, you know, the presidential election and the Senate races around the country. And those are obviously important, but locally, I've, t- I've talked about it on, on our podcast before, um, and there's been getting new and different focus of media coverage the last week and a half has been ballot measure 110. And um, that is the ballot measure that was formerly known as IP44 and would, if enacted by the people by a vote this November on election day, make Oregon the first state in, in the United States to decriminalize small amounts of uh, the possession of small amounts of controlled substances. And, you know, for Oregon, um, it's been an interesting ride the last four years when I practiced uh, as a public defender at the trial level. The If you looked at courtrooms around the courthouse and looked at the charge that was being adjudicated in those courtrooms, the possession of controlled substances was 
probably the second or third most commonly filed charge against individuals in the state. And it was a felony up until 2017. And I spent a ton of time working those cases. And, you know, we were seeing back then over 10,000 felony PCS prosecutions in the state every year, creating two to 3,000 new felons each year for the, you know, mere possession of small amounts of controlled substances consistent with, you know, addiction and dependency. And um, it, it was just, when I was doing that work as an attorney, it was so hard to see people swept up into this cold power dynamic that you were talking about in the intro, knowing that they engage in behavior that statistically speaking, um, is uniform across racial and socioeconomic barriers. And to know that, you know, it was certain people of certain economic backgrounds or racial backgrounds being thrust into this system and being made felons for something everybody engages in at, at a consistent rate. So um, I got my voters pamphlet, you know, I got my ballot and I'm really excited for the increased coverage we're going to see about ballot measure 110 over the next few weeks leading up into election day. Um, This will be a huge policy shift for the state if if the measure passes and will put Oregon in the position of being a leader nationwide. So uh, I don't know. I just got really excited seeing some of the news articles about it. Yeah, I think it'll be um, a positive direction. I mean, I've never really understood you, you know, the, the criminalization of drugs. Um, I, I've never really understood the criminalization of marijuana to begin with, and then just drugs in general. And, you know, thinking about essentially a public health or, you know, an addiction issue being criminalized. And, you know, we're just talking about the controlled substances, um, the possession of that. But there's so many crimes that are driven by, uh, drug-related sort of issues or addiction issues. And so I think this will help us start to pull back and, you know, getting into the layers and the complexity of people's lives and beginning to recognize addiction or substance abuse as the public health issue it is. But I, I had a question, like when you were working as an attorney, what did you see as the most common drug uh, that uh, people were engaged with or the types of drugs that people were being arrested for? No, it was interesting. So statewide, and this was consistent in Multnomah County, um, the the number one offense for which people are prosecuted was is the possession of methamphetamine. Even during the heroin spikes that we've seen here and there over the last five to six years, um, methamphetamine was still the number one offense we would see in our courts. Heroin's number two. Um Cocaine would be number three. Um, and then there are a series of other controlled substances of, of you know, they're der- you know, <laughs> derivations of those, whether it's prescription medication being used without um, proper um, permission. You would see, you know, oxycodone prosecutions, Xanax prosecutions, but above and you know, typically it's, when it comes to the street drugs, you were seeing methamphetamine and heroin. So, I mean, one of the things that we see with some of the clients that we work with is individuals, especially the women that we work with, you know, having, you know, challenging lives, whatever they may be, Um, and either through a relationship, most commonly through a relationship, we see this with the women, but get introduced to either heroin or meth. And the 
the spin out from that, like how quickly individuals devolve like into committing other property crimes or even person crimes based off of the addiction, it, it happens. Like we see some of these people that, you know, within six months, um, you know, it's a complete collapse of their life and engaged in criminal behavior. And then hit with these like mandatory minimums or presumptive sentences um, because of the property crime or whatever that they've committed. Um, And there's not really much that you can do about it. So, I mean, it is really great to see Oregon hopefully uh, move forward with this bill. And quite honestly, I haven't really heard any very much pushback against it. So my my hope is that it, it passes pretty resoundingly. But I know you just mentioned 110, but there's also the cyclos, how do you say it? The, the psilocybin. psilocybin bill. Yeah, too. That's a companion, kind of. I mean, they're not being run together or anything like that. But, yeah, but they're not being run together and they're, they're, they're organized by separate folks. But Measure uh, 109 would authorize and legalize psilocybin, which, um, you know, is the main chemical agent in hallucinogenic mushrooms, for example. Um, but there have been, a, a, there's been a, a lot of research over the last few years. Most of the research when it comes to psychoactives um, that had been done in the 60s and 70s had been mostly banned by the federal government and put on hold for decades. But in the last few years, there's been um, increasing research on the beneficial effects of psilocybin, whether it comes to uh, treating chemical dependency, for example, or trauma. There's been a lot of work showing how hallucinogenic mushrooms and psilocybin can deal with both trauma, PTSD, and anxiety. And so what 109 is going to do is legalize it for use in clinical therapeutic settings, um, which that, that's the way in which the research has been done, was uh, through patients receiving it in clinical sessions and um yeah, I mean, 110 is interesting to the extent it acknowledges the failed war on drugs. It uh, elects that we should start routing people experiencing this behavior to treatment rather than, you know, jail and cops and judges. But 109 is interesting in a very different way because it's it's turning the table on the narrative that all these substances are harmful and actually acknowledging that there are beneficial therapeutic effects to some of these chemicals that we've not wanted to deal with in a long time. Um, and now we are. It's interesting because um, this past month, me and my partner, my wife, we started reading Michael Pollan's book on, on it. And it's been, you know, just eye opening and I think um, very informative uh, about um, the use of, I, I can't pronounce it, but uh, the psilocybin. But, psilocybin. There you go. Um, and it's, it's just it's a really great book. Like uh, if uh, it's by Michael Pollan, I forget what it's called. I think it's like Change Your Mind or something like that. And then it's funny because just last night we have like stacks of National Geographic magazine and Smithsonian magazines, and we started reading them in this COVID lockdown. And so I have. Um, uh, I'm, I'm either going to be really good at trivia night or jeopardy at some point, because I just have all this weird historical kind of like scientific stuff that I'm building up. But one of them was on um, the science of marijuana and some of the developments that have happened and just how we actually have no understanding of the the benefits of cannabis and marijuana and, and how it, it, it is like a treasure trove, potentially a really useful medication. Um, once we figure out like what is there, but because it was a schedule one narcotic, it just couldn't be researched. It couldn't be research. I mean, that's what was going on for so long that they couldn't do research on these substances. Yeah. You know, I'm really hoping, you know, if, 
for me, if that passes, like the signal of a, of a values change um, that uh, that will hopefully trickle out and continue uh, throughout our criminal justice system. Um, well, and part of the thing with the war uh, drugs and you know the, the charge of possession of cult- controlled substances is it really is embedded deep. I mean, into our criminal legal system, where so much of policing, for example, is law enforcement. Um, and you, you, you see this, I mean, literally kind of, I mean, this is the way they'll talk about it, but looking for dopers. I mean, they, 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 there's the active targeting of people who look like they're using drugs um, and just targeting for, for arrest. And um, it makes easy stats, you know, it makes for easy arrests. And when it was a felony, it was a heck of a way to boost your police agency's felony arrest rate. Um, and so trying to eliminate those cost and other disincentives from law enforcement's bucket of tools will, you know, require them to do it, you know, look other where, look other places to, to figure out where they're going to focus their energy and make their arrests. And ideally what I think we'd like to see is to have that police energy focused on, you know, actually investigating crimes and keeping the peace in, in, in serious um, situations rather than, you know, trying to take on addiction at the street level mm-hmm. from the badge. It just, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. 110 and then 109. So those are both measures that, you know, if you're listening, it'll be in your, it'll be in your voters pamphlet. Um, it'll explain those measures and you have the opportunity to vote on that. And both I think are historic and transformative for so many different reasons. Um, and I think incredibly important, you know, our organization, um, uh, hasn't officially endorsed it. Uh, and it had more to do with the fact that, you know, uh, we haven't really engaged too much in drug policy. Um, and then I think when they were doing the endorsement process, it was around the time, you know, COVID started hitting. So I just kind of missed it. But, you know, we are supportive of, of this um, as an organization and hope to see it pass. And personally, you know, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, How about you? What did you uh, catch this week? Oh man, you know, it it was such an interesting week. It, it was it was a bit challenging for me to figure out uh what it is that I was going to talk about today, but I think for me what um captured my attention is the news stories around the individual who was killed by law enforcement that was suspected to have killed the right wing or far right individual here in Portland. Um so this was an individual, he came to, he was somehow related or associated to the events that happened here in Portland when there were these, um, when the Trump supporters came into Portland and there was a shooting afterwards and there he was suspected of shooting the, um, the far right individual and then went on the run. Um, he did an interview uh, before he was uh, himself killed by uh, law enforcement um, and ag- admitted that he did it and that he did it in self-defense. But then afterwards there's this really suspicious way in which um, he was killed. Uh, it was unclear and uh, what happened. And it, the New York Times dug into this a little bit deeper and OPB has been, um, Oregon Public Broadcasting, the local public radio here has been, I think, digging deep into this. And what they found is through conversations with witnesses and reviewing um, the police reports and what uh, law enforcement agents said is that this killing has has come out to be really suspect. Um, it sounds like police didn't announce themselves. 
it sounds like the individual didn't actually have a weapon that was on display or, you know, shot his weapon. Um, and I forget how many bullets were fired by law enforcement, but it, I think it was like 50 or something like that. And it was sprayed like into the neighboring houses and walls. And then to top it off, you know, you had Donald Trump uh, this past week uh, bragging about it uh, as extrajudicial killing, as basically an execution and basically saying, this is what this person deserved and this is how it should have been. And, it, you know, the story is, I think, fascinating because it's the confluence of several different things that I think are that are sort of front and center. One, law enforcement practices um, and just how 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 there is really very little transparency and accountability on police shootings and misconduct issues. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of this or even if we do, if any of these law enforcement officers will be um, held accountable, they were all federally deputized, uh, I think state um, sheriff, uh, sh- uh, state deputies in Washington and local law enforcement. So they also have then the federal deputization issue that we've been, you know, battling here in Portland as well. Then on top of that, you have the the biases that we have uh, that have been uh, demonstrated through research uh, around this country of law enforcement being biased towards these far right groups. So you have this law enforcement going out and killing a, a quote unquote suspected leftist kind of activist or advocate or you know protester, um, and then you have Donald Trump, you know, on top of this sort of using this as an example of what he does or what he thinks should be done to political opponents. So, you know, there's nothing information wise, it's still kind of a mess, but I think this crystallizes in, uh, in, in the clearest way, sort of the dangers associated with the environment that exists right now, this confluence of sort of authoritarian far right law enforcement, political opponent um, kind of stuff, all sort of in this case. Um, now, to what extent they all exist, I, you know, no, we don't know yet. I mean, it, it's hard to say, but it, it's a very, it, I don't know, it, it's, it was very, dis- it's very disturbing reading about like the, the most recent revelations. I remember when this happened, I was really surprised more of my friends um, weren't interested in this because I mean, this, it seems suspicious from the start. The guy, I think his name's Michael um, Reinhold or something like that. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but uh, you're right. He went on Vice News on a Friday night and actually um, exposed himself to the media and talked about what had happened um, openly. And it was the next day where he was gunned down. And I think all I can say is because a lot of my friends are plugged into the same you know, world we are, the, you know, public uh, criminal legal system world. And so I don't know if there was just so much exhaustion by the population at that point that everyone just kind of put their normal skepticism and scrutiny down on the ground. But I'm glad to see the coverage is coming back. Um, Because, yes, I mean, Donald Trump um, talked about this being done deliberately. And that's consistent with other ways he's acted during his administration. Remember, the leader of the Philippines, um, Duterte, um, mm-hmm. openly brags about his extrajudicial killing. And that's actually his the national approach to chemical dependency in the Philippines is the uh, deliberate killing of people who are addic- addicted to drugs. And, you know, the president invited this guy to the White House and said that he thought his, you know, 
policies on chemical dependency, which what he means by that is the extrajudicial killing of them, was an interesting policy, and he'd like to talk about it. So, uh, you know, we see these these conversations and statements from uh, the president all the time where he aligns with authoritarian uh, behavior, authoritarian regimes, and for him to acknowledge this is basically a hit job um, should be terrifying to everybody. And what's in, I, I just think the human brain has limitations on how it processes reality. And with so much chaos going on, you can, you can almost see how people become numb to it after a while mm-hmm. and just accept things because to process it is almost too hard. But if you take the president at his word, and you know, this was a deliberate hit for someone who deserved it. And that's absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's exactly right. Like, I mean, it, it is terrifying because, it, I, you know, it's almost like you have to blink a couple times to be able to make sure this is what you're seeing. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of unbelievable that we're in this situation, that this is, you know, how we've devolved um, and how something like this is no longer controversial. Right. And, you know, I think we see it play out on the streets of Portland. You know, we're seeing the mayor now adopt some of this right wing language and his talking points against his political opponent um, and how that's being normalized, like that we can tag people as political opponents, as being a threat to uh, as being a threat to the quote unquote safety uh, of the community. And the response then has to be this overwhelming force or dominance, and that law enforcement is the the tool or mechanism by which to exert that dominance. You know, and, and that's where you, that, that's where you get into the the authoritarian uh, you know regime, and that's basically yeah. what it is. It's interesting because there's two ways in which it happens. I mean, one is like the president has direct authority over certain federal agents, so he can order them to do things, but. And that's terrifying um, if it's if that power is misused as, you know, it appears to have been here. But I mean, the, the other piece to that is when you have um, a group of rabid supporters who basically have signaled that they will take the president's direction and run with it. He doesn't even need people who are legally accountable to him. He can put a name out there, put a person out there, put something out there and know that People are going to follow up. The Patriot player is going to follow up. Someone's going to follow up for him. Yeah. I, I mean, that that is the MO, right? We have like um, people like Andy No, President Trump, other right wing, you know, individuals that have perfected this game where in these seemingly facially neutral or benign ways, they're putting out information that information is being directed to certain groups like militia, far right groups, vigilante individuals, and they will act on their own on this. And I think that is the scarier part is that, you know, you have you have the president basically approving this extrajudicial killing by law enforcement. But that also gives all the other signals that he's given to all these right wing groups he doesn't need like like law enforcement to actually carry out this stuff. You know, I mean, he has he has sent plenty of these signals off to these other groups to basically say, you can also do this, too. And you should, you know, um, and, and I should be clear. I have no idea. You know, this Michael Reinhold uh, individual who's um, been killed when 
when he engaged in his own act in Portland, where, I mean, he admitted to it to Vice News, where he shot this individual. I have no idea if that's justifiable or not. But, you know, the he was on TV. He wasn't, like, trying to hide himself. He was making mm-hmm. himself available. And that's where it's like, it just seems like you should probably bring this person in if you actually think this is a crime and work it through the system in the normal course. Um, not deal with some riled up law enforcement who is just aiming to get this guy because he's Antifa and Antifa are animals. Yeah. Well, New York Times has a really good article and some video recreation. Uh, what is not recreation? Video. Um, what is it when they recreate? recreate? Yeah. Simulation. Simulation. I don't know where they where they've produced like this video and um, and. And based off the information produced what they believe happened. Um, and, and I think it's really informative because uh, it is just using the information or the facts that were there. So we'll see how this all plays out. But yeah, that's what was uh, capturing uh, my attention this past week. And, you know, we'll, it's still very odd week to week, like the news that's coming out. But um Oh, we forgot to mention that the Lakers won the NBA championship. The Lakers did win the NBA championship. And, <laughs> and the season's officially over, which is uh, also exciting because now is when we begin to see all the off-season moves and things like that. So I'm the kind of excited. The best part of the season, the off-season. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see what the Blazers alive. do. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think we're only like a couple pieces away from uh, a solid championship run. That's um, right. All right. Well, talking about the system. So... You know, talking about the criminal legal system and talking about power dynamics, because we've spoken, you know, about public defense, um, how the courts work, you know, basics of like a misdemeanor and felony. You know, we have like a basic overview of the system, but what we haven't really dug into, again, is this asymmetric power dynamic that exists, you know, from pre-arrest, like the moment you engage with a law enforcement officer all the way through reentry. And I think being able to explain that is really important because a lot of these asymmetries have emerged from white supremacy and other structural uh, issues that create inequality in this country. Most of it stems from racism. Some of it stems from other issues like we've talked about, even though the war drugs was born of racism, it is also a social control uh, issue, just broadly speaking. Um, So these are the things that have motivated these asymmetries. But today we'll just talk about that asymmetrical power. And, you know, down the road, we'll talk more about, you know, white supremacy and some of the other structural inequities that exist in the system. But here, I got a basic question for you. When someone is approached by law enforcement from that moment forward, if that person, let's say, uh, has a contact, then is arrested and goes through the system, does that person have any power? That person has very limited power throughout the entire process. And and the dynamic of the power they have is certainly going to be individualized on a case-by-case basis. But the whole system, remember, it's the state of Oregon versus person X. It's, you know, not... you know, a particular prosecutor versus person X or a particular person versus person X. When when you are brought into the criminal legal system, it is the entire state with all of its might bringing their power against the individual. And um, if you see how people behave and you see how people quickly fall into lockstep, you can easily understand how powerless an individual is when um, they enter the criminal legal system. We joked when 
you know, we did the work that, sure, the Constitution has the presumption of innocence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But if you talk to uh, any practicing criminal defense attorney, you always start with the opposite perspective, because that is um, the way the power game plays out. And, you know, when someone is in court accused of a crime, um, until like a jury actually gets in to listen to that event and hear more about it, which we know doesn't happen very often because most cases settle unless or until that happens. Um, that individual is viewed, um, as a criminal in most cases. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's really hard as a defense attorney, um, to present your defense when you do go to trial and of course the jury is instructed on the legal standards and of course they're instructed on the burden of proof but as a matter of practice you know you know that people are wondering i mean they, they're there for jury duty and they think something happened and your guys making them come to jury duty mm-hmm. so um it's, it's it's incredibly daunting for an individual to go through the criminal legal system you know, one thing you mentioned in a previous episode that stuck with me as something now that I use as a talking point is this idea of the system's designed to move quickly. I mean, it's very quick in convicting individuals, but the ability to like undo that, I mean, it just takes so long, but that's where a lot of the emphasis is, is quick and final, right? Like, I mean, finality is something that we hear about all the time, but... Yeah, every- um, Every jurisdiction is different, but the state court administrator um, for all of our circuit trial courts around the state, I mean, they set target goals that they expect the local presiding judges to push that these cases get resolved within 120 to 180 days upon filing. And when you have huge caseloads, you can imagine how hard it is to keep track of all of these different people's uh, priorities and where their cases stand. And there is immense pressure to move the docket move cases, wrap things up. And yet once that judgment is final and there is a conviction, you know this, all of the tools to wind that back, whether it be through post-conviction relief or motions for a new trial, or even when you find new, arguably exculpatory DNA evidence, it's incredibly challenging to get the court to want to undo that judgment. Yeah. So, you know, if we back up to just being on the street and, you know, law enforcement officer either stopping you on his or her feet or pulling you over in a car. I mean, from that moment, like we have our organization, our, ourselves have submitted amicus briefs where we've actually tried to talk about the social science research and psychology behind that dynamic. Because what we have been trying to push is this idea that you know, nothing's really voluntary in that moment. Like we talk about like when a police officer stops you, there are things in which like you can, in most instances, you can, you can stop the interaction. You can walk away. You know, you don't have to say things. You can just not talk to the law enforcement officer. You can, you know, exert your rights. It takes an affirmative action, affirmative actions to do that. Um, and then there's always like this consideration, did the information that was provided to the law enforcement officer, was that voluntary? Was it coerced? Were they notified of their Miranda rights? And what we've always tried to say, it doesn't really matter. There's a couple of things here. One, nothing's really voluntary in that situation. Like when someone's in a uniform and has weapons and a tactical vest or, you know, a belt, um, in this sort of militarized car pulling you over, you know, there's already an asymmetry power. And that's 
by design. I mean, law enforcement, that's the strategy. They're trained in how to keep asymmetry, like how to approach vehicles, how to talk to people, how to keep sort of command and control of the situation. And so it starts from that moment. You're not really ever engaging in a conversation about, you know, um, the well-being or potentially safety or if someone's, you know, coming, you know, to check out to see what's happening. So at that point, you're, you're already being sort of coerced. And then what we've also found is social science research around Miranda. What we saw is basically no one understands it. Like in the most high functioning adults, you could read Miranda to them and they're not going to capture most of that information. And so then when you're talking about individuals that may be, you know, less educated or on, you know, intoxicated in some way or, you know, in an altered state of mind. They're never going to understand Miranda. And that, that's the thing that we've been trying to push is this idea that that's a meaningless kind of uh, uh, exercise at that point. Um, and that uh, when people start admitting to things or something like that, or, you know, that that shouldn't be used against them because we're talking about, again, a situation where there's asymmetry and power. But that whole dynamic to think about like that first moment of contact, how uh, imbalanced that is. And what it is that you're trying to engage with. And, you know, our constitution, the state constitution, the U.S. constitution, you know, the Bill of Rights is really geared as a check on government power as a way to stop these sort of intrusions. And so, you know, there are those rights that do exist to try to push back against uh, misconduct or abuse or intrusions into people's lives. But, you know, we're already starting off at that moment where, again, if we're talking about complete agency and the ability to make decisions about yourself, you're already in a moment where you can't actually leave. You know, you don't know that you can leave. And if you try to leave, you know, you get caught into these like weird sort of dynamics or uh, situations where, you know, they're able to extend the stop or whatever. I mean, what do you think about police stops and that first interaction and the asymmetry that exists there? Well, you're right. I mean, the person, once they're stopped by law enforcement, that person has legal concerns and they probably have safety concerns depending upon, you know, their background and race, racial makeup. I mean, yes, that person is in a power dynamic where um, they really are not in a position uh, to make much uh, of a voluntary choice. But also, yeah, I mean, we know from what we're seeing around the country that um, many people are terrified by these interactions. And if you think about it, and you think about the Miranda warnings, you know, and this is a constitutional requirement that we have, you know, an obligation to inform people um, when they are in a custodial setting, when they're arrested, that they have certain rights. And yet the same people we have informed them of those rights are the same people who want them to waive those rights. So we're telling people, we're going we're gonna to inform you of your rights. But those people who are going to inform you actually want you to waive them. And it, it, it's incredibly an absurd dynamic. Um, you've got, as you pointed out, people in military tactical grade uniform who are trained not just on policing, but they are trained uh, on a bit of the law. And so mm -hmm. one of the things you find um, when you read many police reports is they know legal words. And so um, they, like, for example, um, if you are engaged in mere conversation, if you're a law enforcement officer, if you're a cop, and you're simply talking to somebody, that is not an intrusion on their liberty. It's called mere conversation. It's just a happy chat between one person in a uniform and one person not in a uniform. Um, 
And so you will see in justifying their behavior, police officers detailing how they were simply engaging in mere conversation while asking consent to search, um, which is kind of them confusing multiple legal words, but it's kind of funny at the same time. But, um, you know, the power dynamic runs so deep at that early onset. I mean, it's always cracked me up. And, and trial judges get this. We would be in court all the time, all the time. And the, the trial judges would be examining law enforcement behavior. But as we talked in last week's episode, those judges, when they rule on legal issues, such as whether the police violated the Constitution, are governed by case law. They're governed by what the Oregon appellate courts have said to do. And for whatever reason that I think must come from the type of person who becomes an appellate judge in Oregon's appellate courts, must not understand the actual power dynamic on the ground. Um, It used to be a done deal in Oregon that if a law enforcement officer asked you for a copy of your driver's license, that you were clearly stopped and that the Mm -hmm. officer better damn well have some articulable suspicion before they ask you for your ID. And that rule went out of the way a few years ago where um, that didn't necessarily constitute a stop. You could be walking down the street and have an armed military grade officer um, in a badge um, ask you for your identification. And that could still be considered a happy little mere conversation that was occurring between equally powerful individuals. And so, I mean, part of what you have, you have to understand is the case law is also stacked against the individual. It's not just the power dynamic at play uh, between the two people, but the actual law supports that power dynamic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, a couple of points that you brought up, like first, you know, it, it, I have often seen or heard police officers or law enforcement officers um, state or put in their report these these legal terms. And often what I find is like when a new case comes down that limits or says that you have to do something, then they use that in order to be able to get around the case law. You know, I think the, and, you know, we'll talk about this one too, but like use of force, you know, the magic words is I feared for my life. And then you can basically do anything like, right. I mean, that's, that's basically how the case law works. You just have to, at that point, subjectively believe that you feared for your life and you can use force, even if you're completely wrong about the analysis of that. But it it is funny. But And also, I think the really important thing is this conflict that we're going to, and this tension that we're going to see throughout the system is that we have a system that does not allow you to actually fully realize your rights. Like you cannot fully realize or exercise your rights as articulated in the U.S. Constitution or in the state constitution. Because if you do, you are penalized. Like you get punished for that throughout the system. So like if you are stopped by a police officer and you refuse to answer questions, then that forces them to say, well, why don't you want to ask questions? Why don't you want me to search your backpack? Do you have something in there, you know? Um, and then it creates like this slope in which you you can't get out of, right? And it's like, you're getting punished for telling the law, the law enforcement officer, just don't bother me. And, you know, you often hear this thing, well, if you have nothing to hide or if you didn't do anything, you shouldn't fear anything. And I've always found that question or that sort of framing of it, like so bizarre, because at the end of the day, it's like, to me, if... 
if I didn't do anything or if, you know, why is this law enforcement officer like messing with me? Why, why is this person believe that they have the right to just stop individuals sort of randomly based on stereotypes or, you know, a quote unquote, like hunch, which is just like a stereotype basically, um, you know, and so it, it, it's always so baffling to me that, you know, we, we are willingly giving up our sort of our, what they call our expectation of privacy when it comes, you know, to these basic law enforcement encounters. And um, yeah, it, it, it's just, and then I think for people of color, that that dynamic is heightened in ways that we're seeing play out nationally, right? We, we see very quickly law enforcement move into lethal techniques or a lethal use of weapons based on what is it? The word that they use furtive movements. Furtive movement. Yes. There's all sorts of terms you learn. I have never knew what I've never known what the blading of the body was, but I, I learned about body blading. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain that? Cause I just recently learned about that too. Yeah. So if I'm facing you, but instead of having my, my feet, uh, parallel on the ground, I turn them perpendicular to you so that my shoulders is facing you and my head is 90 degrees positioned the other way. That may seem like I'm just looking the other way, um, but that can be viewed as a furtive bladed body movement by law enforcement. Did you see the Versace story this week? The guy in LA, he was a Versace executive, black man, young black man. And uh, they, they had, the video was amazing. They showed the whole thing, but he was, profiled and detained based on um, the color of his skin. He actually came out of a Versace store of which he's an executive of the international Versace brand and was immediately targeted by a couple of local cops. And when you talk about that private power dynamics, that individual um, was in a position to understand his rights and understand what was going on. Um, but he still had no power and he was aware of it. And so he got his camera out because he wanted to, record what was happening. And it was interesting to see law enforcement's response on the video. They immediately said, well, we know why you're doing this. You're basically going to, there's going to be a bunch of strangers show up here and combat us because you're trying to send a message out to the world Mm -hmm. that they should flock to this location. And he was like, no, I'm just trying to make a recording what's going on here because you're violating my rights. And, and, and it, it, was, it was funny to watch the whole dynamic because at some point they realized who he was. And then they, the tone changed, but not completely. It changed a little bit like, sorry, you know, whatever. We're not snooping around. We're not investigating you anymore. But they still accused him of being the problem. They still accused him of when he was describing how he was being targeted by law enforcement as inaccurate and law enforcement accused this guy they had just stopped and harassed outside the store he's an executive of of i forget how exactly they said it misstating the narrative they kept saying you're misstating the narrative you're you're misstating the narrative and which is recording you guys just being black in in, in (laughs) beverly hills or wherever it was yeah yeah. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. And, you know, cell phones have been a way, it hasn't been an equalizer in that power dynamic, but it's been a way to expose that asymmetry and how quickly it can become, you know, lethal. And I think um, it, it's just remarkable to me that even with cell phone videos right now, that we still, we still have law enforcement behaving this way, you know? And I think it, it just goes to the fact that there's, no real accountability, like no way to hold them accountable. Because if there was, if people were actually scared being caught on video 
and being punished for it, then it would be a deterrent, but it's not. It's, it's amazing how much um, cell phones have become somewhat helpful in not equalizing this power dynamic by any uh, way, shape or form, but at least providing a tool to push against it. But I mean, when I was doing this work and even, you know, up until now, there's been legislation in Oregon on this, but law enforcement's terrified of individuals using their cell phones to record what they're doing. I mean, they will frequently order people to give them their cell phones or put their cell phone away. And if they refuse, try to arrest them for interfering with the peace officer for disobeying a lawful order. They took an intervention by the legislature to come up with some protections, I believe two years ago, Mm -hmm. um, and give law enforcement some direction. They cannot do this, but they really do not like uh, anybody memorializing their behavior when they're making an arrest or a search. Yeah. I mean, I think like this, um, you know, because I want to transition into like once someone's arrested, booked in jail, and we start the trial process, that that power dynamic there. Um, but, you know, from the outset, what we're talking about is, you know, and you use this term, and I've been using this too, but this, the it's the values and the perspective of dominating control. And this is like the core values of white supremacy as well, dominate and control populations. And you dominate and control populations that you believe that are inferior to you because of this ideology. Um, And so, you know, we see that play out with law enforcement. That is the mentality. That is the the approach of when they enter a situation. It is about like dominating and control. That's all the tactics that they're primarily trained and have been trained for for the past couple of decades, even though they've started introducing other trainings. But that training is undermined or contradicted by the the physical appearance and tools that law enforcement is using. So yeah, someone could be trained in de-escalation. Someone could be trained in like mediation or any type of way of trying to be more sort of community type of policing. But if you show up in a tactical gear with like, I don't know how many different things, you know, weapons strapped to you, whether it's a stun gun, pepper spray, a nine millimeter gun, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Like you are antagonizing, you are escalating the situation by your very presence. I mean, I've often joked like in the protests in Portland, if all the law enforcement officers just showed up with like flip-flops and board shorts and you'd have a very different reaction from protesters than you do when they show up, like looking like they're ready to go to war with you. So there's already like a psychological kind of thing happening and responses happening and people's reactions, like their own sort of emotional reactions when they see law enforcement. I mean, I get sweaty every time I get around law enforcement or nervous, you know, not for it. I have nothing to be nervous about it, but it just makes me nervous, you know, it makes me nervous. Yeah. That's because I have a car that goes fast. <laughs> so once someone's arrested, they're booked in jail. Like we began to talk again, like if we talk about the asymmetry of power, we're talking about a a wealth sensitive system at this point too, right? So you're booked into jail. Then we talk about the institution of bail and how that is again, an asymmetrical power dynamic. And then the charging stuff, uh, you know, dynamics there. So, I mean, what is happening? Like how... What are people fighting against at this point? Well, they're fighting against resources. They're fighting against reason. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that go on when someone comes in, particularly to jail and is held in jail at the beginning of a criminal case. I mean, part of the absurdity of the cash bail system is, you know, we have these constitutional principles of equal protection under the law, and yet we know our whole pretrial release system is skewed towards, you know, the privileged. I mean, they're the only ones who can afford to post bail. Um, 
typically. I mean, you know, and that's, I mean, I shouldn't say that in all instances. Um, by and large, though, if you're the type of person eligible, at least for a public defense attorney, um, bail is going to be a challenge um, for you. And when you're in that spot, you're not only stuck with the resource issue of trying to get bail to get out of jail, um, but there's the psychological fact that the bail is often completely irrational. Like there's these little bail schedule amounts that can be like $2,500 for a misdemeanor. But, you know, if they plead four legal versions of their theory of what you did against you, like if they, if you're charged with, um, you know, driving under the influence of intoxicants, for example, and they're not sure if you were impaired by alcohol, impaired by drugs, or impaired by hallucinogenics, they can charge you with three counts of DUI and your bail's three times as high. So, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like, I think if you can talk about this point, because the bail schedule is determined by the number that your charges. Right. It's not like if you commit, like you were saying, like one action. So like I committed a DUI, your bail is going to be set on the DUI. But it's like you said, there's, you can be charged multiple ways. And that is what determines your bail schedule. So we have like this financial uh, sort of albatross. What is, what is it? I, I, I'm going to stop using idioms because I always mess them up, but you have <laughs> this financial anchor around your neck, right? Yes. Like, um, that's huge with bail. And if you can't afford it, you know, you're stuck in jail pre-trial. but then you have the power of the state that influences how that bail schedule is with the charging practices. And they're just looking at a police report at that point, making that decision. So we have now the full power of the state, you know, starting to like crash down on you. So, I mean, could you just talk a little bit about like what goes into the charges and charging practices right now? I know we've talked about it before, but I think this right. is so important. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is. So, um, you know, when a case comes in, when someone's arrested, the police have to, or the police, the prosecutor's office has to review those police reports very quickly. I mean, they don't have to, but there's usually an incentive to, because if that person's in jail, they need to file charges within 48 hours. They need to get them in front of a judge within 48 hours. And so there is a lot of pressure and incentive on the prosecutorial side to make very quick decisions about where the case should go. And so you will see strategically them err on the side of overcharging. Um, that gives them leverage over the individual and charging as many things as they can. And that involves, you know, not only a review of the facts of the case, but often involves creative legal um, maneuvering by the prosecutor's office to come up with, you know, a number of charges. So um, they don't have to make the decision so quickly. They tend to. Um, but when they do make the decision, um, you know, they're, they're making it quickly and they are certainly looking to leverage their position. And that's the interesting thing with this bail schedule is it's rewarded by prosecutorial creativity. And um, the more they charge, the harder it is to get out of custody because it's harder to post that much bail. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about like, again, if we're talking about like agency and the ability to be able to make a decision. So once you're, you know, we get, you, you have that first interaction with law enforcement, you come into the system, you know, you're basically have zero agency at that point because you're being put into a cage. Um, you've been charged to alleged to have committed certain crimes 
there's a financial now wall that's been put up in front of you because based on those charges and then you're in jail. Now, if you, can't you don't have an attorney yet. You don't. I mean, you're yeah. on your own. You're just in jail on your own. Yeah. And that's probably around what, 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours before you even go for your arraignment and get appointed a public defender. And even at that point, I think, as you mentioned in a previous episode, I mean, how what is the quality of that interaction at that point? So when someone goes to court for the first time um, in Oregon, that can look very different. They can either be in court in person or what's happening uh, often around the state is they appear in court by a video screen where they're put in a tiny room in the, in the jail where there's a video recording equipment and then their face shows up in the courtroom on a TV screen. But, and actually, yeah, we're seeing more of that because of COVID, uh, frankly. I mean, there's, there's a lot less in-person hearings, but uh, when someone goes to their initial court appearance, it's the obligation of the court to ask them what plea they want to enter and to assign them a public defender if they're eligible. These are some of the quickest hearings that happen around the state. It is terrifying to me as a citizen. If you go down to any courthouse and watch the arraignment docket and you see how huge uh, impactful decisions on people's lives are made so quickly, um, it's, it's pretty surprising to see in operation how these hearings go. The person is thrust into a room, typically in an orange jumpsuit with cuffs on. There's usually plexiglass around them and some attorney who they've never met before, clearly uh, juggling multiple files, will try to whisper to them as best they can to get information about where they would go to stay, if they could get out of custody, if they have a job, do they have family? Um, but those conversations are happening in open court, um, mm-hmm. you know, with people around and it, it's the arraignment docket. So there's a lot of cases typically to move through. And so the whole process happens very quickly. You don't have much of a confidential conversation at all. And the person invariably uh, feels shuffled through a process rather than a participant in a process. And so, you know, we're, as we kind of conclude today, I mean, as we're coming to the back end of uh, this episode, I mean, we'll stop at the trial and then next week we'll come back, I think, to this theme and talk about like the Department of Corrections and post after you get out incarceration and the power dynamics there. But, you know, right here is where we get introduced to this trilogy of, power, of players, right? Like the judge, the prosecutor and the defense attorney at this right. point. And so before we talk about sort of the beginning or introducing sort of the power dynamics through there, when someone is at arraignment, we talk about this idea of like agency, power, and information. I mean, how much information do individuals have at this point about what's going on? I mean, you talked about like how minimal these conversations are, but how, what what are the decisions that are basically available to uh, an individual defendant at this point? I mean, what are the choices they have? So at the arraignment... Um in theory, you have a choice because it's told you have a choice of how you plead guilty, no contest or not guilty. In fact, everybody pleads not guilty because arraignment courts aren't equipped to accept guilty pleas. So let's say hypothetically, you know, it's a small misdemeanor offense and you did want to resolve it right there. Um, you're not going to be eligible. Your agency is not going to exist because the court is going to tell you that this is not the time to make that clear admission. Um you know, the person will make an argument for release. 
those are only the real two decisions that a court can make then is what is the plea entered and are they going to keep you in custody or release you? But in terms of what the individual who is in jail and being prosecuted knows, they're giving a sheet of paper called a charging document. It can be an indictment or an information that um, lists the legal terminology that's been filed against them. Um, they are not given a copy of the police report. Um, they're not given much other information. By statute, the court is required to advise each person who comes before it at the arraignment uh, and give them an advice of their constitutional rights. In every court I've appeared in Oregon, that is waived um, by local custom and practice. They just make a decision to waive that reading. And so those, um, that information is never provided to the person at the arraignment. Um, whatever rights exist to inform the person, which there are, there are processes, you know, on the books to inform people at the arraignment of what is going on and what their rights are. They're typically waived and it's a very quick process and they don't have much agency at all to decide anything. I can't think if they're, if they're really bullish and they're just adamant that they want to plead guilty, the judge will probably postpone their case a day, but, um, nothing really happens at that day that they have control over. And so when you say that people are getting information about, you know, like a, a charging document or some document that at least explains the charges, but people are waiving like the reading of it. Um, is that, is that the individual making an informed decision? Is that the court doing it? Is that the defense attorney doing it on behalf of the individual? I mean, why, why are people waiving their rights? It's a, it's a combination of the defense doing it almost on behalf of the court. There's an expectation that, the court has that the docket will move quickly. I certainly am friends with and fans of certain defense attorneys who have uh, pushed against that and required the waiving, uh, required the reading of the rights to be done. Um, but there's also, in terms of power dynamics, you, you'll get punished from the court. Like it's viewed, if, if you ask the court to follow its statutory requirement, um, your boss in the public defender office is going to get a call from the judge as to why on earth is this happening? You know, and I think this is, you know, something that I brought up before, but I, you know, as a theme, as we're talking about this, you know, of course the asymmetry of power and again, the agency are the, are the dominant theme. But I think the second theme, the sort of sub theme, I think is really important to understand again is we have a mass criminalization system that punishes you, like you just mentioned, for trying to actually realize the full potential of your rights. Like you cannot do that in this system. If you do, you will be more harmed. Like if you, you will be viewed as antagonistic. Um, there's culture and practices in court. So people want the machinery to run smoothly. And if you try to slow that down or stop it, you as a defense attorney get, gets harmed. The individual defendant then has to pay the consequences of the frustration or anger of the court or the prosecutor. So, you know, as we kind of wrap up, you know, today's episode, can you begin to kind of introduce that triangle of players? And, you know, I, I say this knowing the answer to this, but how much power does the defense attorney have? And are we, does the defense attorney, are they the ones sitting on top of all of this or like what, what kind of decisions or sort of information are we working with at this point? And like, who's doing what? Like a, from a power standpoint? Yeah, from a power standpoint, from my perspective, ideally there would be some sort of equilateral triangle with the judge at the top 
and the defense and the prosecution. Geometry. Why, why, why do you what, equilateral? I had to like dig back in the recesses of my like fourth grade brain and be like, <laughs> you know, a triangle, a triangle with three it's, equal it's sides. Symmetrical triangle. Um, <laughs> Where the judge is at the top, the referee. As opposed to an isosceles, right? Remember that? As opposed to an isosceles. uh, Oh, God, there are multiple kinds of triangles. Dang it. Um, (laughs) Equilateral. Equilateral, yeah. Okay. All right, sorry. But but that, in reality, um, the defense is always at the bottom. I mean, you're you're definitely powerless. Um, You're you're at the bottom of the food chain. now, I think most people would think the judge is at the top of the food chain. And what's really interesting, you know, is that that's rarely the case, particularly with serious, serious cases um, for misdemeanor crimes um, where there is no complicated sentencing schemes and, and the judge has, you know, authority to impose a sentence. Yeah, they're kind of um got a, you know, a decent amount of power there. If you don't like the plea offer from the prosecutor, you can just plead guilty and let the judge decide the sentence. But by and large, the prosecutor has so much power because it's the number of charges they bring against an individual establishes their bail amounts. It establishes their potential sentencing. And they are the only ones who can control whether those charges um, get dismissed or not. And so when you're facing multiple charges, there's often an incentive to do a plea bargain because you want some of those charges to get dismissed. But in doing a plea bargain, you are really surrendering yourself to the whim of the prosecutor. And the judge doesn't play much of a role at all. I think most people would be surprised to to realize how much of um, the people convicted of crimes in Oregon, whether it be for misdemeanors, felonies, et cetera, they'd be really surprised to find out that, you know, those sentences are negotiated by two people in a very different power dynamic that, and, and, and the judge isn't involved. Um, the judge is hardly ever involved. In fact, the judge wouldn't even really have a role in most of these instances other than their their robe and the power of their bully pulpit and being able to, you know, flex and maybe make a phone call to help ease negotiations. But really, you know, the power rests with the prosecutor. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something certainly that's become more front and center in the past couple of years, like the power of the prosecutor, the power of the district attorney and the importance of paying attention to who who's elected in that position for the reasons that you just mentioned. You know, the 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 charging practices, um, that to me is, you know, that first stage of how everything sort of gets, like how, how the situation gets created. And, you know, there are these um, different types of charging, like there's vertical and horizontal, like we've heard these terms before. Yeah. And, you know, the, 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 the incentives that prosecutors have to charge overcharge, like you talked about at the beginning, you know, to leverage the, because we're talking about most of these cases are going to resolve in negotiations. And the first principle of negotiations is how the system is set up is leverage your position. I mean, that, that is, that's the whole point of the adversarial system. It's that idea that people are going to be in this competition and through that competition, you'll be able to, to get to a, a fair resolution because everyone's going to be zealously advocating for their side. But that theory works, I think, more uh, 
in a responsible way when you have more equity of like power, you know, distribution. It does not make sense in what we're talking about in the system that's created right now because prosecutors hold all the cards. They determine what charges they are, like you said. They determine if they dismiss a case or not, you know, if they want to settle a case or whatever. I mean, it's ultimately up to them. And the defense attorney is basically just trying to mitigate, I think, harm at that point, like trying to get the best outcome for their client, innocent or guilty, you know. What you're you're really trying to do there and – this is this is really, you know, what the heart of a public defender does is your whole energy. I mean, unless you think you have a defense to the charge or, um, you know, whether or, or some mitigating factors, you're really trying to humanize your client because you want that prosecutor to see your client as a human being. And and they are a human being. And the system is set up so cold and the machinery operates so fast that there's rarely an opportunity for you to actually present your client as a human being to the prosecutor so they can look them in the eye and realize that they are a person. And a ton of energy and effort goes into just trying to get the prosecutor to meet your client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think like more and more people are getting exposed to this idea of that the asymmetrical power dynamic that exists. And I think there's like multiple things happening here because what is the power dynamic? And we'll finish on this today, but the power dynamic that exists between the public defender and and the client, like it, you know, it's very different when there's someone paying a lot of money for like a high powered criminal defense attorney, right? They, there's an expectation of a service and you're paying thousands and thousands of dollars. And, you know, the idea that that person has to come through and you have a little bit more control in the sense of because you're paying, but with a public defender, I mean, we talked about like the workload, um, the system and how it's set up, but what, what is happening between like a public defender and client at this point? Because when we're talking about from the client's perspective, again, the power of agency and being able to make decisions what what is the asymmetry that exists there? Well, I, I actually like the fact that you're using the word agency. I hadn't heard it framed this way so much, but the big dynamic is it's not just the money. At least when you hire your own attorney, you're choosing them. Regardless, you know, I think people feel better actually because they spend a bunch of money and they think they're worth that money. Maybe mm-hmm. I doubt it. Whatever. Really, it's about <laughs> choice. And there are programs. There's there was one in Texas, I think in in Houston where. Um, at the arraignment, they actually did this. This was part of a study where um, to get a public defender, they put a binder out with like photos and some basic information about each public defender. And they let the clients choose who they wanted to represent them. No kidding. Yeah. And it led to uh, procedural justice favorability. Like people, when they no have kidding. A, you're yeah. right. Like, uh, no, it's interesting to see who gets picked, and that yeah. just comes down to jail <laughs> gossip and maybe the quality of the photo. Um, but yeah, it, that it's, is a it's, way. Not, it's not a truly informed but, decision, <laughs> no. but but that choice that's been shown to be helpful in making people feel reassured about the process. But that's a study. That's not common. That's not how it normally works, and that's one of the biggest dynamics you know facing the relationship between a public defender and their client is the client feels like they had no choice in this. This is just someone given to them. They feel like they're paid by the government. They see the machinery working very fast and they have every reason to be skeptical of that person, um, particularly since they don't know them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like we did a survey with our organization with women at Coffee Creek. We surveyed over 200 women, 140 first time, then 70 in the second round. And this was the issue that came up. Uh, one of the core, one of the predominant issues that came up is that most of the women did not understand what was happening to them or did not understand their sentence or what happened, you know, what happened to them as they're going through the thing. And what we found is studies have showed is that if you do have the ability to retain some control that we see that they actually accept the sentence and engage in programming or are able to, they believe, you know, they believe like in the sense that they feel like they got a fair shake. So you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, like that, this idea about, I never even thought about this, this ability to be able to choose your own public defender, mm-hmm. you know, based on some background information. Um, but uh, that's an interesting concept that I, I'd never actually heard about before. Um, but get you the info. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's super interesting. Like thinking about, because I, I even imagine from like a cultural perspective, you know, if you're a black defendant or a Latinx defendant or, you know, native, like having the ability to have someone that actually actually like looks like you represent you and understand sort of your background and experience how important that may be and you know if you have the ability to choose someone that you feel like that that could better connect with you and better advocate for you like how how important that would be that, uh, yeah please do send me that, those studies i think that okay or that 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 um policy that they have in texas because that'd be interesting to kind of play around with um well we're at the back end of uh, over an hour <laughs> So as we do, we never keep this to an hour, but I think next week we'll come back and talk about, again, these power dynamics and as how they play out in the court and then kind of focusing now more on um, incarceration and then post-incarceration um, and how, you know, again, this continuation of uh, this asymmetry exists. And again, why these asymmetries exist is largely because mass incarceration is born out of this original sin of white supremacy that existed in this country. And there's other structural issues that have come along the way that have contributed to that, but that's largely what we're talking about. And I think like some really good documentaries, one that I was on a panel discussing last night is like the 13th that talks about like the evolution of the criminal legal system. Brian Stevenson's documentary, True Justice is a really good one as well. But um, but yeah, it's kind of wild when you begin to think about like, the state and our society's um, ability to effectuate people's lives and liberty, how, how little opportunity there is to actually participate in a meaningful way in, in that process, like to, to defend yourself, like not in, in the criminal defense standpoint, but like just generally speaking, the ability to be able to just like have agency over, over some of these decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ben. All right. So as we end every podcast, what gave you hope this past uh, this past week? So this is true. It's corny, but it's true. Like we had a really nice weekend last Saturday doing nothing. We had a lazy Saturday and we're a cat family. We're not a dog family. We got two cats. And so we're, my wife is having uh, the three of us. We're watching this Animal Planet show about some cat guy which normally I would never watch, but we're having a lazy Saturday. And it was so sweet. They, they did this program where, um, you know, this prison in South Carolina where, and I know we have something like this at our facilities in Oregon with, with dogs, but, you know, they had this program in this prison in South Carolina where 
you know, I think it was like 95% of the cats were being uh, euthanized for non-adoption. And so they started this program called Meow Mates, where they partnered up these uh, abandoned cats with uh, folks serving prison sentences, and they uh, nurtured them, took care of them, um, raised them, so they were able to be uh, adopted. And, it, you know, it really, the dehumanization thing is such a part of the criminal legal system is just to see people actually caring about pets like normal people. I it just, it really moved me and it gave me hope that, you know, folks just, you need to understand that there are some horrific acts that led certain people to go to prison, but despite what you see in the news, that is not most cases. And these are, they're all people. They're all human beings. Um, some of their uh, behavior and mistakes are, are worse than others. But at the end of the day, there are people in our communities and they can play with cats and they can nurture cats and they can bring them back. And I don't know, I just with the narratives and the way people in, in the current political climate continue to talk about law and order. It was just nice to see through that framing of what it's like. For regular people to, you know, be be doing hard time and being with a cat. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 well, I'm not a cat person because I'm deadly allergic to cats. Um, <laughs> not deadly, but like my eyes swell up. I have a runny nose, and it's just a painful experience being around cats. But um, we're a dog dog family, but it's a beautiful story when you think about it. I mean, we have Project Pooch here and other type of like dog training programs that go into the prison. Um, and, you know, I think, um, like you said, I mean, the system's so built on dehumanizing people that once we give people an opportunity to care about something else, whether it's another person or an animal in a way that allows them to be open and emotional and em- empathetic, like, I think you see like, amazing results Mm -hmm. you know i mean like in the sense of people yearn for connection and a lot of times the the reason why people end up in the system is because of complicated life histories that are often devoid of those connections you know and and you know having to like rebuild that learn how to how to develop that like uh that muscle sort of you know psychological emotional muscle is important and you know i think there are prisons across the country that have found success by, uh, you know, engaging with these like different animal programs and things like that. So it's a fascinating story. I think for me would, and just some of the guys that I work with or, you know, have worked with in prison, they talk about this program and um, how important it was for them as far as like changing the trajectory of, uh, um, uh, you know, their, uh, of their experience in prison. So yeah, it's super important. Um, for me, I actually struggled with this and it was you that prompted me to think that I should be hopeful about this. So um, I'm grateful for it because I, I am one, you know, we started voting in this country and for me, um, and I think this has a lot to do with the fact that my parents are immigrants. Uh, like I just grew up really believing that the right to vote is like this very cherished, um, this cherished right. And something you just don't you don't mess with that you just do you participate every time, and I think this past week we began to see like polls open up, polling precincts, and people starting to vote. And there is both a simultaneous sort of horror show happening, but something also very beautiful happening where, you know, like in Georgia you have a polling pre like one polling precinct, and I don't know how for what population, but it's kind of ridiculous, and 
people were waiting hours, like five, six, 10 hours, you know, to vote. And it doesn't make any sense. I've never understood why like voting is not a holiday, like why it's not a three day weekend. It should be like our July 4th. Uh, I was just talking about this with my wife and we were just talking about like, it should be like a four day weekend leading into Tuesday where, you know, everyone votes. It's like a block party. Everybody's civically engaged, like helping with transportation, bringing food, uh, whatever it is. And then the the day of the election, it should be like July 4th where we have fireworks and celebrate. Like to me that it, there should be pageantry and pride around, you know, making sure that everybody who can vote can vote. And what we saw is those people standing in line voting. And that was amazing. I mean, it was inspirational. It was uh, hugely like um, like uh, motivating, and just reminded me like, you know, people are taking this seriously. People are taking their right to vote and the ability to vote very seriously this election, um, and will wait hours and hours despite the intentional efforts of trying to deprive individuals of hope. And so, yeah, to me, that's, that's been um, really inspirational to see and sort of all the pro-democracy type of work that's happening from celebrities to community organizations, to just normal neighbors and stuff like that, that aren't involved in any of this, but really trying to promote democracy. So that, that, that really gave me hope. And then if you're hearing throughout the podcast, my four and a half year old, she's playing and giggling. So that always gives me hope. She is cracking me up. (laughs) It's what happens when you work at home during COVID, you, get, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, it is what it is and you just have to live with it. So yeah. <laughs> every now and then I put myself on mute, trying to whisper to her, like, shh, but He's having fun. Yeah. <laughs> there she is making a cameo. Well, that's, uh, another episode of trailblazing justice, um, this week. Um, next week we'll come back and talk again about like the power dynamics that exist in our criminal legal system um, and kind of walk through, kind of review what we talked about today, talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, parts of the system. But um, but this is really important. And I think like, you know, we'll segue into some additional conversations, hopefully at some point about why these asymmetries exist in more detail um, and really focusing on racism and white supremacy. This is Trailblazing Justice. I'm Bob and Singh. And I'm Eric Dietrich. And we'll see you next week. Bye.